Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Before we begin the show today, I have a quick addendum. So, in last week's episode, I referred to the Aryans as an imaginary people. And that's only kind of accurate. It's only mostly accurate. I got a note from a longtime listener and a history teacher in San Francisco, and he pointed out to me that the term Aryan does have some legitimate, albeit dated, historical use. Uh, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, it is a name that can be accurately, albeit datedly, applied to a linguistic group in what is now northern India, and these people existed some 3,000 years ago. So they were real. Uh, though nowadays the term Indo-Iranian is more common, in part because the term Aryan is so incredibly loaded. Uh, but for a while, the term Aryan was used by several scholars to denote a lot of people uh, of Indo-European origin. Uh, but by the end of the 1800s, it sort of fell out of favor. Uh, you do get some real scholarly uses of the term Aryan in the 20th century, but for the most part, by the 20th century, it shows up in less serious, scholarly, real material and more in racist, crazy, conspiracy theory type stuff. Uh, the term Aryan, later on, became a term beloved by occultist and by racist. And in their usage of the term, it has little to nothing to do with the Central Asian linguistic group that was around northern India some three millennia ago. Uh, for instance, Theosophist, the occult group led by Helena Blavatsky, they thought that Aryans came from Atlantis. That's a thing you can believe, I suppose. And later on, Nazis and white supremacists constructed complicated theories of racial categorization and migration um, with the Aryans as progenitors of basically every civilization ever, and white. Now, I am going to bet that if you were to go back to northern India some 3,000 years ago, the people you would encounter probably would not read as modern white people, but the term Aryan is a dated term for that linguistic group that was in Central Asia uh, several millennia ago. And those people, they were real. They were a real, actual thing who are now more commonly referred to as Indo-Iranian. But Aryan as a racial group, Aryan as the occultist and the racist think of it, um, not a thing. So thank you, Colin Williams, for pointing that out. Uh, again, Colin, he's great. He's been listening for a long time. Also a friend of mine and a history teacher in San Francisco Bay Area. Um, if you guys ever want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on social media, on facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, or at at Joe Streckert on Twitter. Now, on with the show. This is not the first time that Mussolini has showed up on this podcast. Uh, he also appeared way back in episode 75. And if you haven't listened to episode 75 of this show yet, now would be a great time to do so. It fits in nicely with what I'm about to say here. Uh, in that episode, uh, way before I had this series planned, I talked about how Mussolini did not, in fact, make trains run on time. That's a myth. And that myth of the fascist dictator making the trains work, that implies a sort of larger framework. 
it implies that there is a trade-off between productivity and authoritarianism. The idea seems to be that the more authoritarian you are, the heavier your hand is, the more ship-shape and productive you could be, uh, the more efficient you can be. But that's not what happened at all. Fascism in Italy and elsewhere was not efficient, is not efficient. It didn't whip the Italian economy into shape. And when Italy was finally looking at World War II and facing real, serious, actual conflict, it was not well positioned. And today, we're going to get up to the eve of World War II, and I want to get into some of the factors that put Italy in a bad position in the face of the biggest conflict humanity has ever known. So, throughout the duration of the fascist regime, Mussolini mostly sought a policy of Italian economic independence. He wanted to make Italy use Italian stuff as much as possible. Part of this, probably the most cited and most talked about part of this, was a campaign against that most Italian of foods, pasta. Uh, there is a legend that floats around that Mussolini tried to ban pasta. Uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, what was true was that pasta was and is so incredibly popular in Italy that the type of wheat you need to make it was imported. So Italy finds itself purchasing uh, pasta wheat from other countries, and Mussolini and other fascists wanted none of that. Uh, they tried to encourage greater sale and greater consumption of foodstuffs that could be made of local Italian crops. For example, rice. They tried to sell rice as a good, nutritious, fascist food that more people should eat instead of, say, manicotti, which had to be made from largely imported stuff. This specific policy about pasta was not terribly successful. Uh, even with the general disapproval of it by the government, plenty of Italian people kept eating the foods that they liked from imported wheat, in part because pasta is amazing. It is very possibly the best food ever made. See episode 88 of this show for more of my opinions about that. But this is a good example of the general type of self-sufficiency and isolation that fascist Italy tried to encourage. And it's not unusual for states to try to maintain and subsidize a domestic agribusiness industry. Uh, that concept known as food security, it's pretty common. And even today, most states of any appreciable size do try to maintain an economy that, if stuff were to get real, it would be able to feed itself on its own. But Italy took this policy to an extreme. Not only did the regime emphasize eating local Italian food, but also industrial products, media, and even toys. Uh, children were encouraged to play with things that were made in Italy and reflected Italian values, as opposed to anything that had been imported from other European countries. Nowadays, this policy of economic isolation is known as autarky. And it's kind of notorious for being ineffective. Fascist Italy is a good example of autarky being largely ineffective. And you might be thinking that it's kind of basic and intuitive that a country should produce and consume things locally. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's the case that somebody else, somewhere else, can produce something more efficiently, in bigger quantity, of better quality. Maybe you can do something else well, and hey, that's where trade comes from. A policy of autarky eschews 
that pretty established basis of human economic interaction. Cutting yourself off from the global network of trade and production, most of the time, it hurts you. You lose. Uh, For a modern example of this, see North Korea. They're obviously not doing great. And Italy wasn't as extreme as North Korea, but the economic isolation that the fascists pursued that they thought would encourage local industry didn't. Another big reason is that the fascist regime didn't actually do much to crack down on corruption and cronyism in Italian industry. In fact, if anything, it made it worse. So theoretically, the fascist corporate state made capital and labor into a harmonious, unified, productive whole that would work in concert for great, glorious national goals, and we would all be happy workers and happy owners, all doing things to make a new Roman Empire happen. But that's not what happened. Uh, Instead, the corporatization of unions meant that labor was disgruntled, unrepresented, and not able to advocate for its needs. Meanwhile, management got to stay politically connected and influential. If anything, the position of management went up under the corporate state as opposed to down. Savvy industrial leaders knew that the best way to stay competitive and to keep their pockets lined was not necessarily to make good stuff or to make savvy business decisions, but to make the right political noises. Uh, Industry and industrialist and fascist Italy were successful because they were able to play political games, not because they were actually good at, say, making cars or whatever. Corporatism, like autarky, did not succeed at its goals of growing the Italian economy. It just entrenched a culture of political cronyism that got in the way of growing the Italian economy. And sure, liberal and socialist systems, they also have room for cronyism, for playing political games, for all that, but Italian fascism basically built that into the system. What this all means is that on the eve of World War II, Italy is in a bad way. Despite all the marches and militarism and a campaign for Italian moms to have ridiculous amounts of soldier and worker kids, the Italian industrial economic machine wasn't in fighting shape. Throughout his career, Mussolini and other fascists had sought to suffuse Italians with a martial spirit of sorts, and much was made of creating what the fascists liked to call a new man, an imagined citizen-soldier, who would exemplify the solid masculine values that would ultimately be the backbone of a new Italian empire. But empires are not one with marches or martial spirit. They're one with labor and capital. And before World War II, Italy was in a bad position relative to other European powers on those essential fronts. Italy was still mostly an agricultural economy, for instance. And as a percentage of gross national product, Italian heavy industry lagged behind every other European power. Britain, France, Germany, all of them. And even some other European states, which were not considered powers. Like Sweden. Italy's heavy industry, as a percentage of GNP prior to World War II, was lower than Sweden's and IKEA hadn't even been invented yet. Prior to World War II, the Italian industrial economy was about as big as 15% of France's. And they surrendered. I shouldn't make fun of France for surrendering. There were a lot of mitigating factors. But 
Italy lagged behind literally everyone else when it came to producing coal, steel, and oil, and all those things that you make out of coal, steel, and oil. Like, you know, guns. And while Italy was able to beat Ethiopia with air superiority and poison gas, it was woefully ill-prepared when it came to facing down other industrialized countries. Also, Italy was not in a great diplomatic position prior to World War II, and it didn't really have a good relationship with its closest ally, Nazi Germany. As you can imagine, Nazi Germany was kind of a hard country to be friends with. Uh, In 1938, Germany was poised to invade Czechoslovakia. Hitler and other Nazi leaders, they saw the Sudetenland as a historically German area, and their rationale was that the German-speaking people in the Sudetenland, well, they had a right to self-determination, which meant they had a right to joining Germany, and they should be liberated from, you know, being part of this other state that was governed from Prague. So Germany announced that they wanted it, and Mussolini offered to mediate a conference at Munich which ultimately gave Germany the Sudetenland. Nowadays, the Munich Conference is mostly remembered for British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's remarks about having peace in our time, and that is considered somewhat naive and ironic because just after that happened, World War II broke out. But hindsight is twenty twenty and all that. I want to emphasize here that the Munich Conference was not just a bunch of dudes sitting down at a table and saying, Okay, Hitler, you can have the Sudetenland. That's not what happened. This was a tense, high-stakes conference where Britain and France were doing their damnedest to prevent Hitler from starting a war. And Hitler really, really, really wanted to start a war. He literally screamed at the conference about how the Czechs must be destroyed and how he would kill every single one of them. And at this conference, where Hitler wants war and is screaming his head off and wants to kill lots of Czech people, Mussolini turned out to be the guy who was able to talk him down and get him to agree to a deal where Germany would get to Sudetenland and, in return, not invade Czechoslovakia. In September of 1938, the party struck a deal. Britain and France breathed a sigh of relief. Germany got slightly bigger. And Mussolini... He walked out of the conference looking like a hero. He was the guy who was able to act as an honest broker, as a middleman, and actually get Hitler to use his inside voice and solve problems with words rather than explosions. Uh, this bolstered Mussolini's reputation abroad, and a good deal of foreign elites thought that he would be the one to keep a leash on Hitler. Hitler was obviously a warlike crazy person, but maybe the slightly less crazy Mussolini could be the adult in the room and keep Hitler from blowing up the world. Shortly after that, Hitler started blowing up the world. In March of 1938, a few months after the Munich conference, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia anyway. It turned out that he actually was serious when he was screaming at a diplomatic conference about how he wanted to kill all of the Czech people, and no agreement with Britain or France, brokered by his friend Mussolini, was going to stop him from doing that. And just like that, Mussolini's big diplomatic victory was gone. The esteem that he had gained in the eyes of other European powers was gone. And his inability to actually control Hitler became apparent. Europe was at war anyway. Munich agreement or no. 
About a year later, in May of 1939, Italy signed a treaty with Nazi Germany that bore the evocative name, the Pact of Steel. This agreement obliged the two countries to aid each other in the event of war. Not defensive war, mind you, just war. Wars of defense and wars of aggression. If one of those countries leapt into action, the other would be obliged to help them out. And later on, Imperial Japan also joined this pact. Mussolini's ambitions prior to World War II were great. He could see what was happening. He could see the opportunity here. And what he wanted, essentially, was the Mediterranean. We're talking about taking Nice and Corsica from France, conquering the island of Malta, annexing parts of the Balkans, like, say, the Dalmatian coast, Slovenia, Albania. Mussolini even wanted the Italian-speaking parts of Switzerland. And his war ambition also reached to the southern Mediterranean. He wanted Tunis. He wanted Egypt. He wanted the areas of Somalia and Sudan that were currently controlled by the French and British. He wanted that Italian empire he had gained to expand, to get larger. Remember, he had stood at the balcony of a royal palace. He had been called back to speak again and again and again. The thrill of the crowd, the thrill of expansion, the thrill of becoming a new Caesar. This war was his opportunity. He wouldn't just be declaring war on Ethiopia. He wouldn't just be defeating Haile Selassie. He would be defeating Britain and France. But despite the Pact of Steel, and despite Mussolini's desire to make new, more militant Italians, despite his ambitions on the Mediterranean, and despite having an ally, albeit an insane one in Nazi Germany, Italy did not immediately jump into war at Germany's side. Italian economic policies meant that Italy wasn't ready for it. They weren't ready for war until June of 1940. And a regime that had started with martial furor and rhetoric, and one whose founding myth was the march on Rome and the application of will and force, one that was birthed by roving bands of black shirts going from town to town, beating up socialists, burning their offices, and declaring that power came from a boot and bayonet and a fist. They were a latecomer to actual real conflict. They didn't have the means to show up. We are coming to the end. We have two more episodes in this series. Next week, fascist Italy will lose a war, and Mussolini will lose his dictatorship. This podcast is totally ad-free. It exists because of you. Uh, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be amazing of you. And thank you, all of you, who do that already. I appreciate it immensely. Go on iTunes, give us a rating and review. If you do, that helps other people find the show. So give us some stars, give us some words. That will do something within iTunes' algorithm, and more people will find this thing that we're doing. Once again, I am on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, and on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Do get in contact with me if the spirit moves you. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.